Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Messiah Yeshua, to all the Kedoshim in Messiah Yeshua who are in Philippi, with the overseers and servant leaders, grace to you and shalom from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. I thank my God every memory of you, always praying with joy in every prayer of mine for you all, because of your sharing in the good news from the first day until now. I am sure of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Messiah Yeshua. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. For you all are partakers of grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the good news. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the affection of Messiah Yeshua. Now this I pray, that your love might overflow still more and more in knowledge and depth of discernment, in order to approve what is excellent, so that in the day of Messiah you may be sincere and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Yeshua the Messiah to the glory and praise of God. So first things first, you can tell your sister this is for, for you and anyone else that may have been shaking. I saw you shaking your head at the no harm, no foul. American idioms that, that you and Rabbi Fine sometimes miss and everything, so there's no harm, no foul, just means, you know, just play on, you know. I tried to trip you, but you didn't fall, so no harm, no foul, it's okay. Okay. No. Uh, but that idea that, you know, you, you still owe the money, that reminded me there was, uh, you know, this very wealthy businessman, Harry Silverman, he passed away, and uh, at the Shiva, which is where you sit and wait at the, you know, at the house and people come visit, so where his widow was there, Three of Harry's business partners were were over there, and they're talking amongst themselves. Oh, what a shame! This guy's Harry's such a good guy, and so forth. And one of the guys just looked a lot uneasy. He said, "You know, guys, I, I gotta confess. You know, I I, I borrowed you know, five thousand dollars from Harry, and then hadn't paid him back yet. And his widow didn't know about it, so I gave her I gave her two thousand dollars. She was happy. I mean, she was real happy about it. She didn't know the difference." And, and she got the $2,000. Another guy looked at him, one of the two, two or three looked at, looked at him, and he said, you know, I, I've been feeling a little guilty too. I actually, I actually owed him $7,000. And his widow, she had no idea. I gave her, her $4,000, and she was real happy to get that $4,000. And this third guy, the third business partner, just looking at these two guys, and he's just like, you guys are pitiful. Pitiful. Just, how do you live with yourself? I, I owe Harry $10,000. And at the funeral, I put for the full amount, I put a check right in the coffin for the full amount. <laughs> you guys should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Must not have read the Torah portion, right? So, anyways. Speaking of prison, this letter, this uh, book of the Philippians, for those of you not familiar with it, comes in the progression of. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you know that, you know the order there, right? G-E-P-C, right? Let's see who's Jewish in the room. What's that stand for? Gentiles eat pork and crabs. Just so you know, it goes through that. That's the, that's the order. So if you're looking for Philippians, if you're looking for Philippians, it comes after eat, okay? It's the pork portion. So yeah, you'll remember that. I always hear this general lecture thing. That's not, no, forget that. Gentiles eat pork and crabs, so... Replace that one with anything else. So this is a, uh, 
one of Paul's prison letters. You want to keep that in mind, that he was in prison at this time. So you want to think about when he's writing these things, uh, the frame of mind. Can we compare it completely to prisons of our day? Probably not necessarily. However, at a minimum, there are some similarities in the sense of somebody being where they don't want to be uh, against their will. In one sense, maybe they're protected. In one sense, they're not protected. But in, in, in a real way, they're Paul's in prison when he's writing this. Um, the time, and just so you know, the reason I'm talking about this, we may talk a little more about it next week, is that we're, our plan, I don't know for how long, is to go through as much as, if not all of, of the book of Philippians. That's what Rabbi Chaim had uh, kind of laid out for us to do in the, in the near future. So we're going to be going through this book. So if you want to read the book, the whole book, you can do that. That's where, uh, barring any, anything else, that's where we plan to stay for several weeks, I would say. Uh, four or more weeks, perhaps. We'll see how, how, how much time we have before the high holy days and if we can get through it all and so forth. Um, but this, the time period of this uh, is thought to be uh, probably about 20 or 30 years after Yeshua's death. So I was thinking about that. Uh, I was actually reading, reading through this earlier in the week and uh, I was thinking, you know, what, I wonder what happened you know, 20 or 30 years ago you know, in, in, in my life and, and many of us here were around at some point here. Maybe we don't remember a lot 20 years ago. But a lot of us, I think, do remember things 20 or 30 years ago. Just put that in perspective how the events of Yeshua's death kind of were still, was this like old news, was this something you'd never think about that had no impact on anybody or anything? Well, uh, 1989, um, I was looking, the, the Berlin Wall came down. That was 1989, that's about 30 years ago. Um, we have uh, uh, Oklahoma City bombing was in this time period 20 or 30 years ago. Um, O.J. Simpson was acquitted. Remember all that? And that was that was 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, the Gulf War was 20 or 30 years ago. You know, uh, we had the 20th anniversary of the Columbine shootings, right? Um, and my point is to bring some of those things up, just to kind of maybe put you in, in the mindset of you know what, how fresh and how impactful things that were 20 or 30 years ago were, and kind of where, where you know how that even if you weren't there. Paul wasn't, wasn't there, per se, or wasn't, you know, first-hand experience and so forth. And maybe some people who are reading this weren't first-hand experience. But these are things that could they have heard about it? Would they have been news events and so forth? Would they have been impactful? Would they have had some kind of change? So, again, there's just some things. There's many more things. Uh, there was a different president a couple of terms 23 years ago, I won't mention, and so forth. But different things like that. But still impactful things. You might remember where you were and what was happening at that time. So what I'm going to do today is, uh, we'll, we, may, we may finish early, we may finish later, but we may finish early, we'll see. Uh, but I want to go through, um, just kind of go through these first, uh, first verses and kind of see if we can glean some things uh, from, from Paul's letter. So first of all, um, we see that this is Paul and Timothy writing. And Paul often has referred to himself this way before, but he says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Messiah Yeshua. Um, and your translation either says slaves or, or servants of Messiah Yeshua. Many of us know this word, uh, this word doulos. This is the word, you know, there are pregnancy people that help with pregnancies now that are called doulos and so forth. But the idea of servant or, or slave. And that's an interesting word, I think. And it sometimes can be a charged word, and certainly in some contexts, uh, this idea of being a servant. You know, what do you think of when you hear that term servant? 
Some people grow up in countries with servants. It's much more commonplace. You talk about it here in the U.S. It's like, oh, you had a servant growing up? I mean, you must be really wealthy. Other places, it's not quite the same. But just that idea of servant, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And the idea of I'm a slave. You know, what, is that, what, is that, what image does that, does that bring up, you know? And do you, more importantly for, for application for us, do you view yourself as a, as a slave or as a servant of the Lord? A slave or a servant? Think about that for a minute. Or, or maybe, maybe you're in reality, whether you say it or not, you're kind of like an independent contractor, right? My own schedule. I definitely, he's my main contract. I serve the Lord, but if I want to take this weekend off or if I want to take you know, this day off, I take it off and so forth. More like an independent contractor, you know? You do it your own way, etc. I think it's important to consider would you call yourself a slave or a servant of the Lord? And I think so often we, we, mistake, we mistake submission to authority as something that's degrading or something that's oppressive when, when really it's for our own benefit, you know? Um, I'm not, in, not endorsing, you know, the modern-day equivalent. I say modern-day loosely, you know, hundreds of years ago. Uh, modern-day equivalent of, of slavery, which is and was terrible, right? But in a biblical context, when we read the word slave here or servant, um, it's different. Uh, for example, I'm going to flip back to uh, Exodus chapter 21. In verse, verse 6, Next, I'll go back a little further to verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve for six years, and in the seventh year he is to go free without payment. We read about that a couple weeks ago in Leviticus, this idea of Shemitah and release, release and so forth. If he comes in by himself, he is to go out by himself. If he was married, then his wife will go out with him. If his master gave him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children will be her masters, and he will go free by himself. But if the servant plainly states, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I will not go out free, then his master is to bring him to, the, to, bring him to God, then take him to a door or to a doorpost. His master is to pierce his ear through with an awl, and he will serve him forever. So I read that just because, again, that kind of goes back to my question. Is, you know, is, is it a positive thing or a negative thing, being a slave or a servant? Here we see an example where God has a provision for slaves um, that know that they are loved by their master, and they and they actually make a, a, a actual um, active choice to serve, to serve, and to continue to serve. And it wasn't like if the servant says, "Well, he's got my wife and kids, I want to stay." No, it's like he's just kind to me, he's good to me, and so forth. So it's not always as negative a thing uh, when we talk about being, you know, uh, subservient or restrained if you will, in the sense of, of a, someone who's serving, who has someone else's interest in mind, you know. That's not necessarily a bad thing. So again, we see provision, and we see, we see benefit. Um, so I think he's implying that it is a, a good thing, a thing to be uh, appreciated. As we'll go on, we'll probably see that. So going on, it says, so to, to uh, it says, slaves of Messiah Yeshua, to all the Kedoshim, where all the holy ones, your translation may say, in Messiah Yeshua, who are in Philippi, with the overseers and servant leaders. To all the holy ones, 
or kadoshim, the word kadosh. Paul's at the outset, um, you know, setting a very, kind of working on their self-image in a sense, you know, um, setting the bar very high, very, very high for them, you know. If I said, hey, how are you doing, Renee, you woman of God, you holy one of God, I mean, if you get that kind of response from somebody, how do you feel sometimes, you know, like, yeah, you're right, holy one of God. So, you know, it's sometimes a little bit awkward to, to, to receive that. If someone calls you a person of God or calls you, you know, holy one and so forth, um, I think you feel a little awkward. But nonetheless, and this is what Paul, I think, is trying to lay out here for, the, for this audience, and, and we can take for us as well, is that as a child of God, it is a reality that you are a holy one, right? And that's actually not even a reality that you guys are like, yes, I, need, I guess I am. It's actually a calling. Even in the book of Leviticus, the Lord said that you are to be holy as I am holy. That's what we're called, we're called to do. Now, I think the, the, what, what creeps in there, and the thing that might give some reservation, is that this is not talking about perfection. You know, if someone, if you were to call someone holy and someone heard that, they might be wondering, who are you to say you're holy, blah, blah, blah. This is not about perfection at all. Kadosh, um, and the fact that it says Kadoshim here is important, whether you know Hebrew or not, holy ones is a little, can be misleading because um, kadosh means holy in the sense of being set apart for a specific purpose. It's important to realize that when we have the kadosh after service, sometimes the kadosh is something that sets something apart. It sets apart our Shabbat observance, the thing that, we, that starts our Shabbat. It's set apart for a, for a holy or specific purpose. So that's the, that's the sense of, of holiness. So with that as your perspective of holiness, does that help you at all in view of your ministry or in your calling to serve the Lord? Because again, that is what Paul's doing here at the outset. He's, he's setting that bar. He's setting that standard. He's setting that thing for which we read elsewhere where he talks about you know, forgetting what's behind, stretch forward for the, the high price, stretch forward for what's, for what's in front of you. That idea of being set apart. There is something to be set apart for, not perfection. Because quite frankly, it's not about you, you know, it's not about you, it's not about what you can do, it's not about how talented you are, it's, it's not about any of that stuff, um, but it's all about who you work for, <laughs> in a sense, okay? It's, it's him that has called you and equipped you and who has set you apart for his purpose, so that's why Paul is calling them holy ones, not because he thinks they're perfect or that they're so wonderful or that they're so talented or anything like that. He's kind of reminding them of who you are. We often have to remind ourselves who we are sometimes. This goes back, Heim often talks about, you know, when someone says, who are you or, you know, or what do you do? Automatically go to, we go to our, what we do for a living and so forth. Very sad, just a little side here to know that you might think, well, I have no problem with this self-image or image of who I am in God and so forth. Uh, I used to live in Southern Virginia and I would sometimes go over to Western Virginia, and uh, West Virginia is a beautiful place, and there's also some pretty country places in West Virginia. And I remember being, uh, I was at some convenience store or something, and some guys were out there talking, and people are super friendly. And I said, hey, how y'all doing? Or what, I said, what, and he's fine. Uh, I, said, I, said, I said, oh, what do you do? I asked this guy, what do you do? I kid you not. He was drinking a beer. He said, without. <laughs> No, really, what do you do? He said it again. Without. That was pretty, pretty, pretty sad, actually. But that's the idea. That's kind of how he, how he viewed himself. And I think, uh, you know, again, um, 
thinking about yourself as a holy one or set apart for a purpose is important to understand, you know, kind of where your, where your self-image comes from. It's not about you. It's not about what you can do. It's not about your talent level. But it's about who you work for, you know. You know, who you work for in a sense and what you're equipped and called to do and how you've been set apart for a purpose. And again, that's why Paul is calling them holy ones. But he's not just saying that you're holy ones. He's, if you look again, it says that you are holy ones in Messiah Yeshua. A little preposition there could be in Messiah Yeshua, with Yeshua, or, or by Yeshua, right? So that's who your holy one's in. So that in anything that you do, you are empowered and you are equipped by the authority that, that you're given. And, and that's really important. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on that because I think it's important that we remember that in any area of ministry that we do. Ideally here within Yeshua Tzion, but also in, in your lives, in your, you know, we call it your ministry. How's your ministry? You know, sometimes people ask that you think, I'm not in ministry. No, you are. You are in ministry. You're called and set apart for a purpose. And you're, it's in Messiah Yeshua. It's important. By him and with him. That's what's important. So don't feel sheepish about any of that because it's not about you. Okay? It's about who you're called in. And then he talks about some, uh, overseers and servant leaders. Um, Sometimes translated bishops or deacons, these words, these Greek words here. And you can really, people really like to delve into this and decide, okay, how do we set up our congregational government? And, you know, do we, do we have voting? I've been in, in debates before about this, but are you elder-led? Are there female elders that's going to that? Are there, you know, are there, do you have deacons? Do you have bishops? Well, I'm a bishop. I'm a prophet. I'm a de And they really want to get into to splitting these kind of things apart. How do we have governance? We have to have a board. How many? Is it seven? Is it eight? Is it ten? Is it three? You know, whatever. All this kind of stuff. I think, again, I like to zoom out at some point and say the bottom line is that these, these are leaders and servants and that there is no perfect and there is no set, you know, biblical model exactly of a congregational government in the Bible, okay? Um, and again, we can debate all of those forms. We can debate about voting. We can debate about not voting. We can debate about boards and all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is that there are leaders. And there, more importantly, there are servant leaders. And there's an idea of servant. And there's lots of them. You know, it's not just like a couple paid spiritual guys and then maybe some other elders and so forth. They're not, we are all, in a sense, here to serve. This is a place that all people, we're here to receive. Of course, we do receive here. But that's not how we should view the congregation. That's not how we should view ministry. It's a place to serve. So there are specific set-apart servant leaders. Are there term limits? Do we switch them and so forth? But in any event, we should all view ourselves in some respect as, uh, as servant leaders in whatever, we're, whatever we do, whatever we're called uh, and we're set apart to do in, in, in Yeshua. It's not just important. It's, it's vital. It's vital to the community. We're going to have a, a, a town hall meeting next month in July, or the exact date, towards the end of July. I think we decided we'll be getting that out to you. And we're going to talk about stuff there. And there are so many things. When I sit back and I think about, you know, we, we have a need for this, we have a need for that. Connie was just talking to me today about the ways she could serve and so forth. This is great. We all, there's, there's, you know, we don't want to just plug people into certain things. Anything we do, we want to have a vision for. And I have a vision for all types of things that we need to do to take us to another level. And the first thing I realize when I, when I think about those things, whether it be you know, more robust uh, web presence or social media presence or, or safety plan for the congregation, what do we do when someone falls down in the aisle, which they won't, and they're not, you know, it's not a spiritual thing, but they actually fall down. What do we do? All that kind of stuff, that takes, that takes leaders, that takes servants, that takes people who, who are looking at this as a ministry where they can serve and not just receive. So there are big things to do. So each of us should be looking for ways not just to come and receive, but in ways that we can serve.
And again, not ways that we can serve just as that contractor on our own terms, right? But that we are actually slaves and servants of Messiah, that when we see, a need, we see the, the, the vision that we really do go, go after it. And so, again, that covers everything from the, we see that, um, as Paul talks about here, this, this covers um, everything from practical affairs of the community, like some of the things that I spoke about, but also to the spiritual progress of folks, you know? Um, you can render spiritual progress, even if, you know, you can render spiritual help to people, I guess, even if you're just doing what seems like mundane tasks. I always think about that in Acts chapter 6, we had this, this debate about these, these widows who weren't getting their food, and they were looking to someone who could distribute food for them, and they didn't say, okay, who is it that's really good, you know, administrator, really good with, you know, spreadsheets and that kind of stuff? No, they said, who is it that's full of the Spirit? that has an ability to, to hand out this food. And I thought, full of spirit, we're talking about food distribution. Well, no, not at all. I mean, any kind of service, whether it's the chairs, whether it's the audio, whether, I mean, there's lots of, what I'm doing is not the only spiritual thing here. Far from it. I mean, when we're greeting people at the door and we're talking afterwards, there's all kinds of spiritual service, and that's what we're rendering to one another. So anything that we, any way in which you serve is, again, anything from practical affairs, but it's not that it's, this is a practical affair. This is a spiritual affair. It's all combined in one thing. Um, so even the mundane tasks. Verse 4, um, Paul says that he's always praying with joy in every prayer of mine for you all. And he's not praying with joy. But he's praying with joy. You see, if you were to go through this book and, um, and underline, actually I had done that earlier in the week. It's funny, Rabbi Hines notes he had, he had said he, he, he did the, ADD thing or whatever, and he counted, and he said, I think it's the 13th time. I, I, I thought about a dozen is what I thought, so I guess I was right without counting. You just see it repeated, uh, and we may talk about this as we go a little more in depth uh, through this book, but you see it repeated, um, that word and that idea, even in the, when it's not using the word joy, but you see that word specifically used over and over. You see joy, rejoice, rejoicing, okay? Um, and it's, it's, it's very, it kind of jumps out at you. It doesn't, once you look for it, you'll, you'll see that it does. And think about that. This is, again, this is coming from a guy writing from prison. And you saw the joy, rejoice, I rejoice, rejoicing over and over and over again. So it's kind of interesting uh, for us to consider that. Verse 6 says, I am sure, this is Paul saying, I am sure of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Messiah Yeshua. Now, um, I won't talk about the day of Messiah Yeshua and figure, figure out exactly what that is right now, and I apologize for that in advance. However, I do want to talk about this idea of carrying it through to completion. This word, this word here in Greek is the word uh, sometimes translated, if you look it up, it's perfection. Um, but perfection, in that sense, always has the idea of completion as opposed to perfection the way we think about it. It always has to do with completion. So in other words, he will carry his plans through to his perfection, but which is completion. And, um, and maybe it'll be the way that you see it, or the way you'd like to see something. But you think, well, I think God's begun this work in me, and you kind of see this is where I, where I want to go, where I want to be. He's going to carry his work in you through, through to completion, to his perfection. And sometimes it's hard to, to stomach, because sometimes it's like, well, that's not exactly... I wouldn't have chose that end result. I wouldn't have chose that, that completion. I would have chose something different. But keep in mind that he says, he's promised here that he will carry his work, God's work, through to completion. Whether it's the way you like it, whether it's the way you see it or not, it may not be. But remember, remember though, as, as servants of his, that this is a good idea. 
This is a good promise that God will carry out his work to his completion um, because it, it takes the weight off of you, or it should take the weight off of you, you know? Uh, the idea that you're not responsible for, for the outcome. Now, I want to I caution you here sometimes because um, if you've ever managed people or maybe if you've been managed, you've been one of those people that who people who have managed people think about when they say, when they don't necessarily agree with the way you want to do something, for example. I don't think it should be done that way. Well, at some point, they're the boss and you do it that way. You have a choice. You can say, fine, we'll do it your way. And you can do a certain thing a certain way, just waiting for that, aha, told you, showed you it wouldn't work kind of thing. Or you can get on board and change your thinking and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not responsible for this, but I do need to serve this master in a way that is honorable and so forth. And so you have a choice there. Um, again, on the one hand, it takes the weight off of you. You're not responsible for the outcome, but it doesn't mean that you need to serve with a bad attitude. But you need to serve knowing that the outcomes are up to God. Okay, and as you're serving your boss, it's the same way we're going to serve as, as if we're serving unto the Lord. Verse 7. Paul says, it is, right, it is right for me to feel this way about you. This idea that he's joyful and so forth, thanking God for them. And that God's going to work things to completion. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. For you are all partakers of grace with me, both in my imprisonment in the defense and confirmation of the good news. So I thought it was very interesting here that Paul's talking about a commonality of grace. We talk about, we're, we're, we could say, well, we're all here, we're sharing the grace of this space that we have to meet and this fellowship and so forth. But they're talking about, uh, you know, commonality of grace in hardship and in sharing of the faith. That's where they're experiencing God's grace. And again, we tend to think, I think, of receiving grace in different sorts of, of ways, don't we? I don't think you typically think, oh, I'm sharing the grace of my buddy who's in prison. And the fact that he gets to share the good news there and I get to share it here. I don't think we think that way necessarily about that being a commonality of, of grace with one another. And I would just pray that, that you know, we could see God's hand of grace not in the, not in the, the necessarily welcoming or the embrace of hardships. See? I guess I'm punch. Um, but we don't want to embrace the hardships necessarily. But in the face of hardships, I think we can, we can say this, that we can embrace God's grace in the face of hardships, not in embracing them and holding on to them. We don't want them, actually. I think we need to, 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 to resist them, in a sense. And we can also rejoice in the fact that we have an honor and a privilege of being people of God, that we can share that with the rest of the world. This is this idea Paul's talking about, that we share... In the grace of God that we get to share the faith of God. That's a very important thing, you know. Um, I met, a, met with a, a guy earlier this week who, um, at, at the office, and I can't give all the details about his life, but I can say that, you know, he's in what we, we would think are the middle years of life, you know, the, the second or the third chapter perhaps. Um, and uh, he's very excited. He just kind of just became a believer and just kind of got turned on to, to the Lord, and he's He's excited to get, about getting started right now, about living the rest of his life in service to others, you know, being the best employee, employee he can be at a job he's not that crazy about, he, he said, um, but all because of a transforming experience with God, you know, this idea of being empowered by God to be the best ambassador he can with the remaining days that he has. I think that kind of ties in with this idea about 
sharing in the grace of God, God's grace being recognized in the fact that we're able to share, share the faith and share what God's done in our lives. Verse 9 says, Now this I pray that your love might overflow still more, I'm sorry, still more and more in knowledge and depth of discernment. I think it was a little different translation that uh, Grace had read. But again, that your love might overflow more and more in knowledge and depth of discernment. When you think about love, where does love, where do you think that love comes from? You know? When you say, oh, I love you. When you think about loving someone or something, I think it, it tends to be like good feelings, you know, good experiences, good circumstances. We say we love something. I really love this, I love that. It comes out of this idea of good experience, good feelings. Um, but how about love coming from knowledge and discernment? How about depth of discernment, you know? Man, I just figured out, I know Ariel figured out some deep calculus problem, and he's so joyful. I mean, you know, the point is, does that really come to mind that you find joy in, in knowledge and depth of discernment? You know, uh, it's confession time here. Uh, I began reading Philippians again this week, um, and what I'm sharing today are some initial impressions that I had, uh, but mainly you know, areas that I, I noted for ideally some future depth of study, which I couldn't quite get into when I found that I was preaching at 845 this morning. So I couldn't quite get into some of the depth of knowledge and the depth of discernment. These are just some ideas here. But I do think, you know, that nonetheless I would encourage all of us to read Scripture, yes, and to write things down, initial thoughts and so forth, but to ponder them, to seek knowledge, to seek ways to further investigate this. And those are some things that Rabbi Chaim and myself are available for. If you're wondering, you know, how do I study? What do I do? I read the Bible. Okay, wonderful. You know, all things work together for good. Okay, great. Things are terrible, so I guess they're good or whatever. You know, there's more depth to understand things. And we have tools and ways to, you know, not how to look more deep into Scripture. But it's important to, to look at Scripture, to write things down. I, I wrote a lot of questions down. I wish I could have had an answer for you today, but I don't. But I wrote a lot of questions. That's interesting. I, wrote, I noticed joy was in there a bunch. I want to look at that later. Well, now I can just tell you it's in there a bunch. Maybe in weeks to come I can tell you some more insight into that. But initially, you know, I'm reading, I'm writing down things. And boy, joy sure appears a lot here. Or I wonder what this means. There are partakers in, you know, in these two things. Or this idea of love coming in. You know, all these things I write down. So I would encourage, again, all of, all of us to read Scripture, to write things down, to ponder them, to seek knowledge and the depth of discernment. And that, that does come from repetition, that comes from prayer, and that comes from study. And then sort of the, the punchline to, to that, this idea that Paul's saying, look, I would hope that you'd have this love that would overflow from knowledge and depth of discernment. You know, so what? Well, he says, so he answers, so what, in, in verse 10. He says, basically, so what? He says, I want this to happen in order to approve what is excellent, so that in the day of Messiah you may be sincere and blameless. But in order that... In order to approve what is excellent, this is what's called a purpose statement. Um, so the idea is that you know, this is not, he doesn't want you to have this, this love, this overflowing love, just for your mental pleasure or just for your personal success. But he says he wants it in order to approve, or you can translate it in order to decide, or in order to, for you to be able to determine what is best or for you to be able to recognize what is excellent, you know. Um, there, are, there are lots of things in life, I think, that are fair. Remember, you know, 
I would sometimes ask my mom, how, how are you doing today when she was sick? And she, oh, fair. You know? It's like there's lots of things in life that are fair, lots of things that are adequate. There's lots of things in life that are passable. And some of those things are really not even that bad at all. You're living an okay life or some stuff's going okay at work or whatever it might be. Um, there are lots of things that are really just not bad at all. But really, God's standard is the highest standard. God's standard is the highest standard. It might not be the world standard either. There are some people that get that confused. They well, if excellence means this kind of car, this kind of house, this kind of private jet, and this is quite frankly the fact that some, some preachers are like this, well, that must be that if I'm God's child, and that's, that's it. But the fact is, that's not necessarily, I'm not saying that those things are bad at all. I'm saying that that's, we're talking different standards here. There's lots of things like God's standard is the highest, and it may or may not be the world's standard. That's the most difficult part because really that's all we tend to compare things to. We tend, we, that's all we have to compare to sometimes. But the fact is, God's standard is the highest. So don't get that confused. But that's what we need to be on the lookout for, God's standard. That's what Paul says here, that you know, we pray that this love from your knowledge and discernment of the depth of his word would be so great that love would overflow so that you could recognize the good stuff that, I've, that, that God has for us, his best. Amen. You know, striving for the world's best might very well just be falling into the hands of the enemy, I believe, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're looking at that as the comparison. And we don't want that. We want to keep our eyes on the standards of the one we serve. Mm-hmm. And you can really only serve one. You really, really can, effectively, you know. Not as an independent contractor, but as a, as a servant, as a slave. And my prayer today is that each one of us would, would continually refocus ourselves and our efforts and our service and our study and our discernment of, of our master, of our boss, in order that, as set apart ones for him, that we could be found sincere and blameless when we one day do meet him. Well, let's pray. Lord, I do thank you today for your for your word, for the time of fellowship that you've given us, even in this warm room. We thank you for, uh, for the sunshine here that you show us, Lord, that, that we can be without excuse that we know you exist and that you have a plan and purpose for us, Lord. We pray that, that our love would be evident to the world, that it would be overflowing, Lord, out of a, a depth of knowledge of you and a depth of discernment, Lord. Help us to know those standards that you've set out there, Lord, that, that, that we could know what pleases you and what doesn't please you, Lord, that we would not look to the world uh, for our standards and for the benchmarks, Lord, that we would continually seek to, to share in that grace that is being able to put you on display to the world. So we just thank you for, for your word and for this time. In Yeshua's name, amen.